If you're joining us for the first time, and maybe first time in a long time, we have been going through the book of Acts. We've been looking at what God has to say to us. So if you have a Bible, a copy of God's Word, if you could find your way to the book of Acts. The last time that I taught was a couple of weeks ago, and it was in Acts chapter 3, where there was an incident in the temple in ancient Jerusalem. And the incident really was because of a man who had been crippled for four decades, who asked for money, asked for a little bit of help, a little bit of relief, a little bit of assistance, and instead of getting money, he was actually healed, healed by two of the first followers of Jesus named Peter and John. So what you read about in Acts 3 and even bridging over into Acts 4, which we're going to look at this morning, is this whole scene created such a disturbance in Jerusalem that the aftermath rolls over into another chapter, into chapter 4. And Peter and John are still talking in Acts chapter 4, explaining what's going on. And so I want us to read a portion of that. We'll read the first several verses here in Acts chapter 4. And I'm I'm going to ask uh, Gretchen Mahoney to come and read. She's going to begin reading in verse 1 of Acts chapter 4. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the the temple and the Sadducees came upon them greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, If we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has come to, has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Thank you, Gretchen. Just hearing that verse, verse 12, hearing that read, always is such a strong word. It is a word filled with confidence. And the question I have for us today, the question I want to consider with you today is what what will give you the kind of confidence to stand for Jesus when the difficult moments come? So when I hear those words, that's that's where I go. What kind of what, what can give us that kind of confidence that we would stand for Jesus when difficult moments come? 
I guess we never know exactly what we might do, but that question assumes some things. It assumes there likely will be difficult moments that will come. And we will be called maybe to stand when we did not even expect that we would have to make a decision. Oh, that's going to happen right here, right now. I didn't anticipate that. Maybe that happens. The question also assumes something else, and that is that Jesus did not call us to be semi-committed followers of his. Kind of followers when it's convenient. But then when it becomes inconvenient or uncomfortable, we ditch all that. It also, it also assumes that there may be pieces of evidence, maybe patterns that we see in the first followers of Jesus that can help us. There may be things, and I really do believe, there are things in this story that can help us stand for Jesus even when it becomes difficult. I guess we never know what, exactly what we might do. I want to have lots of humility here to recognize there's a chance we might crumble under the weight of that. But I do think there are some safeguards that will protect us, that will help us. So if we jump into the story and, and what Gretchen read about just a moment ago, our authorities in verse 1 and verse 2 that are flexing a little bit, showing their, their strength, their might, their power, their authority. So we have kind of the lineup of those that are in the, on the Temple Mount there who are in charge of stuff. So we have the priests. The priests who were the ones that would offer sacrifices for the people, they, they kind of had a monopoly on speaking for God and connecting people to God. Or at least they thought they did. That, that's the way it went down in first century Palestine. But there's also not just the priests, but this says there's the captain of the temple, which I, as best I can understand is that's like the head of the security, chief of security for the temple mount. And the reason why you would need security there is there was always some sort of potential for a riot or some sort of disturbance. There was a po- political unrest. Things were not always smooth and stable. And, and so there was security to, like, cap that so nobody got out of hand. Let's keep everything kind of moving on because if the Romans were to come, and it, it just would be a disaster. So you have the, the chief of... or the captain of the temple. And then you also have mentioned in these first couple of verses, the Sadducees, which what we can tell of them from different sources is that they were actually the political party that had an interest in, like they were the ruling political party. So they have an interest in everything ought to stay in the status quo. Nothing needs to change. I mean, when you're in charge, you're glad to stay in charge. And so They definitely don't want any sort of disturbance. They want to keep their power and their authority. And so it says the Sadducees came upon them. I think another way we might say it is they they came down on them. I mean, they're, they're wanting to deal with this situation. And it says that the group is, is annoyed. It says actually they're greatly annoyed. They're annoyed at the teaching of these disciples, Peter and John. They're annoyed at them talking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They're annoyed at how they're making connections because he is risen. We have life, we have hope, we have a future because of the resurrection of Jesus. And so the response to that is not just annoyance, but actually verse 3 tells us. They go ahead and just, in light of a disturbance that happens in the evening, we'll just deal with it in the morning, but we're just going to arrest people. We're just going to put them in jail, and then we don't have to deal with it tonight. We'll deal with it tomorrow morning, and we'll, we'll try to sort through all this. We just don't need to mess with it tonight. Let's just go ahead and arrest them. So that's exactly what happens. 
But Luke inserts a detail in verse 4 that I hope you don't miss because the last time it seems like people were arrested in the story that's told in the New Testament, it's Jesus being arrested and he goes to trial and he's crucified. Is this going to be the way this goes down? Is it going to be, is the movement even here at the beginning with the first followers of Jesus, is it going to be stifled or snuffed out because of this antagonism by the temple authorities. And Luke reminds us, no, no, it's not going to be. As a matter of fact, as the apostles, as the disciples are teaching, 5,000, and the way they would count then, 5,000 men are, are added to the faith. So maybe that's inclusive of women and children. Maybe it's just the men. There's also women and children involved. I, I don't know exactly how to decipher that, but whatever it is, we've got a four-digit number telling us lots of people are actually hearing this message of the resurrection of Jesus and they are believing that. They're receiving that word. So night passes with these men in jail and the next morning we get another lineup of the big shots who are coming to court, right? Verse 5 and verse 6, we've got the rulers and the, the elders and the scribes gathering together. And then we have a few names. We have Annas. And Caiaphas, this isn't the first time those two are mentioned in Scripture. They participate in the trial of Jesus as well. We get two other names, John and Alexander. And we also get this picture of all who were of the high priestly family. And it says what they do is they gather and they put Peter and John in the middle, right in the middle. It's, my mind goes to a picture of like piranhas going to, to really deal with these two that have caused this disturbance. Or another picture in my mind is some grandstanding congressional hearing where really just someone wants to make a name for themselves. And so they're like questioning and badgering these people. They have Peter and John in the middle and there's this group of people gathered around them. And then the question comes. This is a scene meant to show the intimidation that these high priests, these temple authorities were wanting to exercise. And verse 7, the question comes, by what power or by what name did you do this? To do something like this requires power and authority. So what authorized you to do this? What name are you going to claim that gave you permission to like march right here in the temple and create this kind of disturbance? What authority do you have even over the natural world that you can do something like this? Where does that come from? So that's the, that's the question they're asking. And now we can understand even why they're asking. Because some of their power perhaps is being threatened or at least they're concerned about it. They're greatly annoyed. Before we dive into what the answer of the disciples was to that question, I, I want us to take a step back. So can we do this for a moment? And realize that there always seems to be a group in society and culture that has an influence on deciding what's going to be the right way to think, the right actions to have. So it really doesn't matter what society, what culture, what group, what people, what village, what tribe, what city, what culture, what area of a country. There always seems to be a, a thought, a worldview, an idea that wins the day, that says this is what's right. It seems to be, and sometimes it's official, sometimes it's not official. There's someone who puts forward ideas that gain traction in a culture. The people begin to go, oh, that's what you ought to think. That's what's right. So who gets to say, if you have these beliefs, then you're wrong. If you have these ideas, you don't get a voice in our world. 
Who determines like the ways everybody should think, the ways everybody should believe? Who sets the consequences? And who says, you know, consequences are going to follow if you don't line up with how we're thinking about this? Actually, here it happens to be a religious group, but sometimes it's not. But I want you to recognize that often, not always, but often the followers of Jesus are out of step with a culture and a society that says, we think this is the right way to live. We think these are the right values to have. Christians will often find themselves out of step. When we follow Jesus, we find ourselves out of step with sometimes the prevailing ideas. We just need to recognize that. Inevitably, as we walk the way of Jesus, we find ourselves at odds with the authorities. Again, whether they're official or unofficial. For some Christians in this world, today, they, because they believe in Jesus, because they worship the, the God who sent his one and only son to die on the cross and the one who rose from the dead, because they believe in Christianity, there's a predominant religious system that says you're not allowed to confess that, you're not allowed to share that, and we will exercise the government's resources, the state's resources, to persecute you and to forbid you from doing that. That certainly goes on. It, you're, we're, we're naive if we don't recognize many places around the world that is the predicament that Christians are in. But sometimes it's not so formal as like a, a religious system or a government or a state enforcing this. Sometimes it's just a matter of people in society, maybe it's politicians or maybe it's people that are involved in, in art, or maybe it's the ones who have loud voices, the ones who maybe write books or produce movies or do concerts or are on social media and they have a large following. They are determining, like, this is, the way, this is the way normal people think around here. And if you don't think that way, then actually you're not welcome here. To go against some of this that is like the, the in way of thinking is to find yourself in, in hostility to the, the mood of the age. Do we recognize that? Sometimes it, it even shows up in, in academia, in university settings, where there's, again, sometimes it's formal, sometimes it's informal, where teachers and students and maybe a culture of a campus determines this is what we're going to accept, this is actually what we're going to celebrate, and whoever doesn't, well, then you don't get to talk anymore. We have no time for you. And, and sometimes it doesn't, it doesn't mean real hostility, like physical threats. Sometimes I guess it could. Other times it just means marginalization and distance. You're just going to not have the right to be heard. So there's always a struggle. So everybody has an idea of we think life should work this way. And do do you understand there's often a predominant view on that. And Christians often find themselves a little out of step with that. Here it is, the temple authority, the authoritative structures, the scribes, elders, rulers, chief priests, have determined this Jesus, we don't, we're not going to go that route. We don't have time for that. And they're flexing here, asking, who gives you the right to bring Jesus into this place? There is a response by the disciples, and I just want us to take note of it. It is like a spirit, Holy Spirit-soaked response. It says they are filled with the Spirit. Peter is filled with the Spirit, and he answers their question in verses 8 and 9. 
Jesus promised, when you are brought before authorities who put you on trial, the Holy Spirit will give you what you need to say in that moment. Jesus promised that in Luke 12. And here, actually, I believe the Holy Spirit is giving them what they need to say. So what does Peter respond with? If you look at verse 9, actually where Peter goes is he asks a question. And because I happen to be sarcastic, I can't help but appreciate there's a little sarcasm, maybe a lot of sarcasm in Peter's question. But in verse 9, he says this. Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by, are, are we really asking by what means this man has been healed? So it's almost as if Peter said, just for a moment, let me, let me make sure, I, I want to make sure I got the question right. So you are asking us. Right over here, there was a person that was crippled for four decades. And he's no longer crippled. A good deed has been done for this. I, I think we all agree on that. Oh, so you're asking why we did that. And then he says in verse 10, we have no problem acknowledging, let all Israel hear, let everybody, you can know, everybody can know, no secrets, no hidden agendas. Any power, any authority we have comes from the power and the authority of Jesus. So if you're asking why this man is no longer crippled, why he will now have a life freed from begging at the gate. Actually, that didn't come from us. It actually came because of Jesus. We believe that this world is living under his rule and is accountable to Jesus. And you know that the authorities just had to cringe when they heard the name of Jesus. There are just so many different ways that the disciples could have framed this. If they wanted to avoid, if they wanted to avoid much more conflict, they could have said, Actually, actually, we just wanted to help someone out. So you're asking what gave us the right to do that? We're just, we're, we're helpers. We just wanted to help people. They could have even said, you know, we want to be loving and we want to be a blessing to the city. We're for Jerusalem. And so we're here because we just want to be a blessing to the city. And they could have said that. But they don't run from an opportunity to bring Jesus into it. They actually, Peter presses further and this is where we, you know, you start getting getting uncomfortable. I, I think even the casual observer would go, "Ooh," like things just escalated quickly. When Peter says, "You know, Jesus, the one who you rejected and actually rejected violently, you crucified him," and we are talking about Jesus, the one who you rejected. And he goes back to Psalm one eighteen and he quotes. A passage from the Psalms, and he says, remember, he is the one who's rejected by the builders. So so you, the temple authorities, you did not find Jesus to be suitable building material. You thought, we can't build anything with that. But actually what God was doing, you rejected him as a stone, but God validated his authority, brought him back to life from the dead. And he is now the cornerstone, or some translations say the capstone. He's the load-bearing stone. Everything hinges on him. So if you want to know why we healed this man, what authority we had, why we brought that into the temple on this particular day, you have to know about Jesus. Remember Jesus, the one you crucified. God raised from the dead. This is the one we're here because of. If I come back to the question, the question I asked originally, what gives you the confidence to stand for Jesus when difficult circumstances come? I think one answer to that might be 
based on this passage, when you keep the cross and the resurrections at the center of your attention and your affections. You stand for Jesus when you keep the cross at the center of your attention and your affections. And the reason why I use the word affections is because I didn't really know how to summarize and bring together your ambitions and your desires and your hopes and your dreams and your joy and what you want and what you live for. But when you keep the cross and the resurrection right at the center of it, it's amazing what confidence that can give you to speak for Jesus. Over and over again, the disciples are talking about the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. We care and we're devoted deeply to Jesus because of the love and the power we see in the cross and the resurrection. Because we believe the cross was personal for us. It was for us. It wasn't just a random event in the universe, but it has meaning to us and that gives us confidence to stand for Jesus because we know that was done for us. And we also know that the cross was done in love. It was not God kind of having go to, go to plan B to get people out of a jam. We know that God set his love on us, and in love he, he moved toward us to bring us out of darkness into light. God loved the world in this way that he sent his only son, that whoever believes in him wouldn't perish. When the cross and the resurrection are central to us, we realize that has power. It's not a band-aid to fix a couple of messed up things in our lives. It is the power to transform our lives. To bring us back into right relationship with God. To bring us actually into a way where we can live which is exactly the way God designed us from the beginning to live. For Peter and John, what gave them confidence in that moment is that their life story now wrapped around the cross and the resurrection. And that fueled them. They, they couldn't help but bring that. When they're called on to give an account of why this man's healed, quickly out of their lips is Jesus Christ, crucified and risen from the dead. It was interesting this week. So actually, it was just Friday. I was listening to uh, an interview. And a person was interviewing uh, Clark Kellogg, who is a basketball announcer, a studio analyst for March Madness, and kind of walked through his story, walked through how he played college basketball. He was a high school all-star in a college he did, uh, had, a, had a great career at Ohio State, and then he went on to play for the Indiana Pacers and kind of tracked his career. And then at one moment, it, they began talking about how he had to exit basketball, professional basketball. At the age of 26, he had to retire. And the interviewer, asked him specifically, like, what did that feel like to have to leave the game of basketball, professional basketball that you love, that you had poured so many years into? And I'm, I'm telling you, there wasn't a second hesitation when I heard Clark Kellogg begin to say, actually, what prepared me for that was something else that was going on in my life. And that is, I was going through some Bible studies with a minister, and he shared with me my need of a Savior. And, you know, we all come into this world in desperate need of a Savior because of our sin. And we cannot save ourselves. And actually what gave me hope was that there was a point in time where Jesus Christ, who is God the Son, came in. I mean, he just starts unloading. And it was interesting because I'm not sure the interviewer knew exactly what to do with the moment. Let's just say it wasn't the most engaging the, the interviewer had been the whole, the whole time. And kind of in light of 
the interviewer not asking more questions, Clark kept talking and kept talking and kept connecting other dots. And, kept, and I remember almost needing to pull off in the parking lot going, my goodness. And it was certainly impressive to me because of Clark's notoriety, just his, his fame. I, it was interesting to me, but at one level, knowing what I was going to talk about on, sun, on Sunday, I just thought, yeah, that, that is the way a Christian thinks. At one level, this is entirely ordinary, where we get asked a question about some event in our life, and we read it through the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. And we say, actually, because of that, I had a very different perspective on things. In some ways, this was just quite normal. I wonder how this looks like in your life. I wonder how often it comes up. I wonder if there's a verse you meditate on, a verse you think about. I wonder if it's some touch point you go back to. For me, one of those verses is, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice in Romans 12. And I think, in view of the mercies that I've been shown, and I don't know any clearer of the mercies of God than I see at the cross, I wonder what routines, what habits you have what things you have in your life to make sure the cross is front and center at your life. I know one way we can be prepared when difficult moments come to stand for Jesus is to put that cross front and center, resurrection front and center. Maybe it's a song you listen to that just puts that right in front of you. Now let's keep moving. Because verse 12 was so powerful. We, we heard it at the beginning. Let's Let's hear it again. What gives you boldness to say something like this? There is salvation in no one else. There's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Peter knew this would not go over well in the temple precincts there. But there's such an urgent note sounded by those verses like your salvation is at stake. There is salvation only in him. And maybe you would say, well, I don't, you know, salvation, that sounds like eternity. I'll worry about eternity when I get there. And that would be entirely sh- short-sighted of you to do that. But I will say, even if you take that view, what about your rescue today? Who is going to rescue you from who you are and what you've done? From what suffering you've caused, from what you're responsible for? Who's going to rescue you from that? Who's going to come to your rescue so that you might live in harmony with the purposes of your Creator? There's only one. And if anyone receives salvation, it will only come through Jesus. The disciples didn't invent that. Jesus told them that. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It's a polarizing statement. It can be a very inviting statement. And then we have access to the Father through Jesus. But so much in this world, listen, we have to know this, right? So much in the world pushes against that exclusive claim of Jesus, that he is the way. So much will tell you, and I, I think this is the way it's going to continue to press, that saying Jesus is the only way, that there aren't like many ways and many ideas, and all of them are kind of right in their own way. That's the spirit of the age. And to say Jesus is the only way, there is no other name, actually puts you at odds many times with what the world is preaching, what the world is saying, what society is saying. But you need to know, you need to know, the high stakes that are involved in this. Because while you're tempted to say, ah, it sounds kind of arrogant and foolish to just say there's only one way, 
So I think I'll just go with everybody else on this and kind of say, I don't know, I'll, I'll be humble and say there, may, there might be lots of ways to God and I'll fit in with the spirit of the age. You have to know what you are doing when you do that. Because what you're doing when you do that is you're saying, Jesus, I think you had a lot of good ideas, but on this I think you got it all wrong. And in 2,000 years we've really improved on what you had to say and we corrected some of your errors. That is really what you're saying. Because Jesus made it exclusively clear that he is the way. And for us to modify or adjust, we're saying, Jesus, you missed it on that one. And I think I, I, think I can correct you. What, what we have to understand, this powerful verse, is that there is no other name. Notice Acts 4.13, now when they saw the boldness. So that is a bold statement, isn't it? That when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they perceived that they were uneducated common men. So that it's not like they were ever in debate class or had ever done mock trial. Like, who are these people to argue so boldly? They were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. I love that phrase. They had been with Jesus. The defining characteristic of their life wasn't it even that they had mastered all the theology of Jesus, but actually what was noticed about them is they had been with Jesus. And I think this is another thing that will give you confidence that you can stand even when difficult moments come. And that is you realize that your closeness to Jesus prepares you for faithfulness to him. They had been with Jesus and because they had been with Jesus, they knew how to respond boldly when they were put to the test because they had been close to Jesus. Because they had been with Jesus and they were close to him, they had heard him say, you're going to drink the cup of suffering that I'm going to drink. They had heard him say, you will have to take up your cross and die daily to follow me. They had heard him say, you will have tribulation in this world. If they hated me, they will hate you. They had been with Jesus. They had heard all these things. Their closeness to Jesus prepared them. They had been with Jesus. They had watched him meek, yet powerful, humble, yet awesome, caring and gracious. The last few chapters of Jesus' life recorded in Luke. It's almost as if you are reading a parallel account to what's happening in Acts 4. It's almost as if the same thing happened to Jesus that's happening now to his disciples. Because you see, in Luke chapter 20, he enters Jerusalem and he also clashes with the temple authorities. So the disciples have already seen this movie in some ways. They know what it means to clash with the temple authorities. They know what it's like when the people hear Jesus and they, they respond with joy and faith and they believe. And they know what it's like when the same cast of characters, the chief priests, the scribes, the elders, begin asking, tell us, Luke 20, verse 1 and 2, tell us by what authority you did this. Who gives you the right to do this? That's what they said to Jesus. Now they're saying it to the disciples. They know what it's like when chief priests and scribes try to play these word games, trying to trick him so and kind of cancel out all his influence and his impact. These disciples had been with Jesus. They had seen the power of the leaders, Caiaphas, Annas, scribes, priests. They'd seen what it was for them to exercise their power and have Jesus arrested. They had seen what it meant for Jesus to be put to trial and false witnesses summoned against them. They had seen what it was like for Jesus to be crucified. They had been with Jesus. The disciples have confidence 
Because even through this, they know that this man is God the Son. It is God in flesh. They have been with him. They know this man was filled with love like no other human being ever has loved. This man has a rescue mission like no one has ever had. They know that Jesus had authority even over death. They know the change he can bring. What will give you confidence is your closeness to Jesus. You know, your relationship with him, your closeness with him, will have its ups and downs. I know mine has. There have been times where I've realized it's not been so close. And through my decisions, it's been a little distant. It's been a little cold. And there have been times where the Lord has just humbled my heart. Where all I could do is say, sorry, Lord, I have walked away while you were still very, very present. There are times where you reflect back on the year's worth of patience that the Lord has had with you. And how close he's been. There's times where you realize the pain, the wordless prayers you prayed in his name because the pain was too great to even articulate words. But in that moment, you still knew he cared. You still knew he cared. and You knew he didn't leave you. And you knew he wouldn't forsake you. There are times you've invested. There's morning and evening where you've read his word and, and you've gone back to hear my sheep hear my voice and you've listened. Maybe there are routines of personal worship. Maybe routines like what you've done even today where you've gathered together and you've, we've sung to Jesus. We've prayed in his name. Maybe it's at a graveside. Maybe it's a home. Maybe it's a, in a worship service. Maybe it's a camp or a retreat where you just have had these unmistakable experiences with Jesus where you know you know he's close. And I'm telling you, that closeness prepares you for moments where you're called on to be faithful to him. You keep following the story, the authorities, and they're not happy with what's going on, but they don't, don't know exactly what to do. It says in verse 14, they, they've got disciples who have been with Jesus, but verse 14, seeing the man who is healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. Verse 15, when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another saying, what shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign had been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. We cannot deny it. We have authorities who seem to be really powerful, and yet all they can seem to do is decide to bully and intimidate. Verse 17, but in order that it may spread no further, let's do this. Let's warn them to speak no more in the name of Jesus. That's what we'll do will warn them. So they call them and they charge them. They order them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. So you can have your private beliefs, but don't you dare bring that public. No more talking about Jesus. Peter and John didn't come into this looking for a fight. As a matter of fact, all they've done is a good deed done for a crippled man. <laughs> All they've done is make someone well. All they did was heal a notable sign for everybody to see. But actually, here's where it landed in verse 19. Verse 19, Peter and John said, after being charged and warned, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you, you can be the judge. But we cannot but speak of what we've seen and heard. And so when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what has happened. 
For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. There's a confrontation. And what gave them confidence? I mean, that's strong. You can judge whether we should listen to God or you, but we cannot help but stop. We're unable to stop speaking. I find what gave them confidence in that moment is when they recognized that there were no other options. I just want this to settle on our hearts right now. I think we can know we will be bold in those moments where we might be pressed. When we don't play the game of options. But when we recognize, I have no other option. I am totally committed to this man named Jesus. My life is his. I don't have an escape. I don't have an exit strategy if this all doesn't work out okay. We have followers of Jesus that are devoted to him. May may it be so that I am just like them. They recognize that he is the only one who can save. Where else are we going to go? Who else are we going to lean on? They realize that his ways are best. And so they submit to his authority. They do what he wants, even if it means difficult moments come. No other options. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. I love the confidence of the disciples. And man, I wish I could say I'd be right there with them. I I, I wouldn't flinch for a moment. I wouldn't blink. But frankly, I wonder sometimes, I wonder if I'm made out of the same material. I wonder that because I'm sometimes not even put on the spot. Sometimes I'm still making choices, not even put on the spot, that seem like Curtis is the center of the universe rather than Jesus. I mean, I did that too many times this past week to name. So what would make me think that I might have confidence in this moment? You know, what actually gives me the most hope in this story? Actually, what gives me the most hope is that the one being bold is Peter. Because when I, when I hear these statements and I hear them, knowing it is Peter that said them, I think of the one who totally messed up. The one who had one of the worst failures imaginable. And I open my eyes to a story of grace that is even written here. Because God knew Peter inside and out. And Jesus knew Peter when he called him. And he knew Peter would overstate promises and would underdeliver with results. He knew Peter's kind of brash self-confidence. Jesus knew that. And Jesus not only knew that, but also forgave Peter. He didn't ignore Peter's sin. He didn't ignore the most horrible mistake of Peter's life. But he also didn't let that keep distance. So in John 21, there's a story of restoration. And Peter actually is restored to service. And now when I hear that, I recognize God had done a work by the Holy Spirit in Peter's heart to strengthen his heart. And now his trust is such and his allegiance is such that he is bold going forward. So the same Peter who denied now is strong. 
What a work of grace. How do any of us know beyond a doubt that we will stay strong when the difficult moments come? I, I'm not sure we can know that. But we do have an example, don't we, in Acts 4 of a pattern. Some evidence of some who did stay strong and we can learn from them. But even beyond that, even more than that, we have a strong Savior. And we are reminded that we can do all things through Jesus Christ, our Savior, who gives us the strength. So actually, I don't point you to yourself. I point you to him. And with him giving us the strength, we can be faithful. Even when we are pressed. 